it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the Situation in the Story podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moore, a queer writer and educator living in Denver. I'm here to bring you the story behind the story. When I read a book that intrigues me, no matter the genre, I want to know more. Who is this writer? What challenges and mundanities led them to create something so profound? More than craft and publishing stories, I'm here for the in-between. The ways our various identities and intersectionalities inform our stories and make us who we are. The ways we transform barriers, borders, and boundaries into art. Happy October! my faithful and my new listeners. So glad you're here. If you enjoy the conversation you're about to hear, please quickly leave a rating, a star rating on Apple Podcasts. It just takes one click of the finger. Um, If you have even 30 more seconds, you could write a short review. That really helps boost the show so that we can continue to be successful. Another way you can support uh, these important conversations is to go to patreon.com slash situation and story to give whatever you feel is appropriate to help keep us going. For this episode, I sat down with David Heska Wombly-Wyden to discuss his debut novel, Winter Counts, published this past August by HarperCollins. If you don't know, it's a crime novel, an indigenous crime novel. And if you've got kiddos around the house or in the car as you're listening, I would take caution with this episode. We do discuss much of the violence committed against the indigenous people of this land. David is a enrolled member of the Sichangu Lakota Nation. And Winter Counts is be, has been wildly successful. New York Times Editor's Choice has been selected as Amazon Best Book of August, Best of the Month by Apple Books, the main selection of the Book of the Month Club, and it was an indie next great reads pick. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. David, why do you write? Well, hey, first of all, it's just, you know, so great to, to be here. Thank you. You know, it's uh, really cool, you know, and uh, happy to, to take part, you know. So why do I write? Well, you know, why why does any artist create? I, I just felt that I had a story that wasn't being told, um, you know, and I've been struggling for a long time to get that story out. I originally started writing short stories I wrote some indigenous science fiction that was not very good. I uh, wrote a lot of short stories that were, you know, flat out terrible, you know, and I I just, I I was trying to find my voice for a long time, but I write because I have a story that I want to tell. There's a story, you know, of my people. I am Sichangu Lakota, and there have not been enough writers from my nation. There are a handful and certainly nobody that's working in the crime fiction genre. So I write to tell this story, to educate people, to entertain, you know, and just, just to please myself. I'm, I'm never happier than when I'm actually writing and creating. So in long and short of it, that's why I write. Yeah. Well, we're here to talk about your debut novel, Winter Counts, which was published um, this past August. And as I've kind of followed the release the past couple of weeks, your work seems to be experiencing an incredible amount of success, warm reception, multiple countries. It received a New York Times review. Even Oprah called it one of the best books of the season. So first of all, how does that feel? Well, obviously, I'm 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 thrilled. Um, 
there were a lot of things that I, I didn't see coming. It was chosen as a best book by Amazon and Apple, and I was really thrilled about that. What threw me for a loop, a happy loop, was that the book is it's one of the main selections of the Book of the Month Club. And mm. this had real resonance for me because many decades ago when I was a kid, I grew up fairly impoverished, but my my parents had they were members of the book of the month club. They, they scraped up the money and it was a big deal in our house. The box would come and it would be like great writers. I think Hemingway's last novel was in there. I seem to remember Graham Greene coming in possibly in the bulk of novel. I mean, I was very small. I didn't know what these books were and I, I couldn't understand them, but I remember the excitement in my house of the book from the book of the month club arriving and my parents actually arguing over who got to read it, First, So a couple of months ago, when I got word that the Book of the Month Club was making Winter Counts one of their five main selections for September, I, I was just really bowled over. I mean, I was just overwhelmed. And and it's been great. It's, you know, sold over, you know, to club members over 20,000 copies. I've gotten huge amounts of photos from people, fan mail. And the Book mm. of the Month Club members, they, they, they just, they really dig it. And so that has been great. So look, what writer isn't happy, you know, that, that their book yeah. is finding an audience. So I'm, I'm absolutely delighted. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, will you tell us a little bit about your own identity and history as an Indigenous person? Did you grow up on a reservation? No, I did not. So I am a, a Denver native, and I've, I've told this many times to journalists, but I'm proud of it. I grew up in the Swansea Illyria neighborhood. So mm -hmm. it is, uh, if, if you don't know, uh, uh, it's a, a neighborhood in North Denver that's uh, considered to be the roughest neighborhood in all of Colorado. It is also the most polluted zip code in the entire nation because we mm -hmm. had uh, in the Swansea neighborhood, there was the Asarco plant just belching out lead into the air. We have the dog food factory that's right there across the highway. We had the stockyards. That was my home. So I grew up in the Swansea Elyria neighborhood until my parents divorced when I was 10 and we moved to North Aurora. Um, but I would spend summers, portions of each summer on the reservation. My, my mom is passed on, but she an, was an enrolled member of the nation, as am I. Uh, the Rosebud Sioux Tribe, in our language known as the Sichangu Lakota Nation, and we would, you know, I would go and I would spend time on the reservation where I never felt fully at home because I'd play with some of the other kids, but they kind of looked at me with suspicion. They're like, who's this city kid? He must be wealthy, which, of course, was hilarious because we were dirt poor, <laughs> you know, we right. were dirt poor. And, um, you know, and then I'd go back to my, you know, I, I went to Aurora Central High School and I'd go back to Aurora which is also the part of Aurora that I'm from is, is pretty rough, you know, so I never really felt that I, I fit in anywhere, but the reservation is a big part of my life as, as is Denver. So I kind of feel like I, I exist in both worlds, but never completely inhabit either one of them. Mm. Yeah. And that neighborhood where you grew up makes an appearance in the book. It yeah? does. I wanted to bring yeah. it in to my knowledge. The only other person that's written about it is my friend, Ben Whitmer, Benjamin Whitmer in one of his two crime books, I can't remember if it's Pike or Cry Father, but Swansea brings, makes an appearance in there. And I was so thrilled. I actually, when I read that book like five years ago, I emailed him like, yes, Swansea neighborhood is representing. Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, so I had to, to put in the uh, Swansea uh, neighborhood in Winter Counts. And I also put in Aurora. I actually, there's a whole bunch of Denver lore in the book. Um, yeah. Yeah, Aurora shows up in there. They go to a place called Taco Mex, which is at Colfax and I think Joliet, which is actually my favorite Mexican place in town. I, I love to go to my old neighborhood of Aurora. It's changed a lot since since I was there in the 80s. It's just, it's home to me. And and I, I just, so I had to set a scene at Taco Mex in there. And there's also a, a scene at the Hangar Bar, which was, I think, at Colfax Trenton, possibly, that is now closed. So all these landmarks that I have in the book are closing down. So, so yeah, Denver's in there and, and Swansea's in there. Thank you for noticing that. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I live right off Colfax in the uh, kind of down here in Lakewood and it was cool to read that as I was, you know, sitting here in my little apartment thinking about all these little landmarks that were mentioned and 
kind of feeling like I was part of the storyline in a way. So that was cool. I studied indigenous cultures and issues during my undergrad at uh, Naropa. So I've read a, a quite a bit of indigenous literature, but not much like this. I haven't read indigenous crime literature, which you have written about the importance of. Can you talk a little bit about why you feel it's important that we're reading this? It's not surprising you haven't read a ton of native crime literature because there there isn't a massive amount. And I published uh, two essays recently, which you were kind enough to note. One is Why Indigenous, Indigenous Crime Fiction Matters that I published in Crime Reads, I think like a month ago or something and seven essential native crime novels in the Strand magazine. And what I tried to do is I tried to show that indigenous crime literature actually has some deep roots. The first American Indian novel ever written was, I guess, arguably a crime novel, Joaquin Murrieta by John Rowland Ridge. And then, you know, the a novel that almost won the Pulitzer Prize by Linda Hogan is arguably a crime novel. But what I tried to show is that there's sort of a, a a style of indigenous crime literature that's different than the other crime literature that's out there. And the two most important native crime writers are this gentleman, in my view anyway, this gentleman, Lewis Owens, who wrote a couple of books that are really important, uh, A Bone Game. He kind of pioneered this surrealistic, you know, visionary style of native crime literature that was very different than Raymond Chandler, Elroy, all the classic stuff. And then my, my buddy, Stephen Graham Jones, whom I just had a conversation with two nights ago uh, for the Tattered Cover event, he wrote a really important book, in my view, called All the Beautiful Sinners. And I've argued mm. that Stephen is the direct heir to Lewis Owens. Now, Stephen is now known as the top writer of indigenous horror, but I've argued in print that he's actually one of the most important native crime writers. And his book, All the Beautiful Sinners, did not get as much attention as it should have because it also pioneers mm. sort of a, a native crime fiction style that employs surreal, surrealism, magical realism. And so I think native crime literature is important, A, stylistically, but also content-wise, because obviously native people have been treated badly politically in this country. I think that's a given. And native crime literature can hopefully open up some of these issues. Obviously, in my book, I talk about three or four different political issues. So yeah, so my my thesis, and I'm going to try not to sound too much like a professor here, you know, my thesis <laughs> is that, you know, native crime literature it 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 educates and and it has an activist function as well as well as entertaining so that that's mm -hmm. the long and short of it yeah no i spoke with sa cosby a few weeks ago who who um is kind of busting into the southern crime black crime novel scene and it sounds very similar the the canon is not huge but it's so important and it's it's starting to grow, which is really exciting. Yeah, Sean is my buddy. Let me jump in on that. In fact, I did a reading with him just last night. Uh, oh, uh, nice. Yeah. Um, he and he and I and, and three other uh, crime writers of color. Uh, Sean, I actually know Sean in real life, as they say. I heard hell. He and I met <laughs> at a, a crime conference and hung out and just this is before either one of us had published our books. And we just immediately just became buddies right away. So I love nice. Sean and listeners, yeah. if you've not read Blacktop uh, Wasteland, you need to go out and get it. You know, I think it's maybe a little less overtly political than mine is, but I think there's a political message in there to be sure. Um, now, yeah. you know, black crime writer tradition, I think, is probably more uh, uh, well uh, developed. You've got Walter mm -hmm. Mosley, you know, a lot a lot more people, the, the indigenous crime fiction tradition is i think less less well developed but hopefully right. you know there are you know some emerging writers out there that pick up winter counts and be like hey i can write that and and even better and i i salute them so yeah so that is great yeah <laughs> yeah um all right let's talk about the novel for those who haven't read it yet how would you describe it what is it about sure so the the the, the basic premise of the novel of winter counts which came out August 25th. So it's been out exactly a month and a day. Um, ah. Yeah. <laughs> seems like yeah. a million. Yeah. It seems like a million <laughs> years, but it's just been uh, 31 days. Um, so um, the, the construct of Winter Counts is that it's a story of a private vigilante. So it's, I have to back up a little bit. So there's a, a law, a federal law that is still enforced throughout America 
called the Major Crimes Act, passed in 1885. And what it is, is that if a felony crime is committed on Native lands, Native law enforcement may not prosecute it. They have to call up the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office, hand the case over to them. That's because of this really outrageous law passed over 100 years ago. Now, fine and dandy, except that the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office are failing to prosecute about 30 to 40 percent of these cases. So you've got rapists, murderers, arsonists, you know, uh, uh, thugs, people, you know, assaulting each other. And the FBI comes in. They've got the person in custody. They look at the evidence a little bit. They they decide, you know, hey, we're not going to prosecute. And the person is released. And so they're free to go out and offend again. And they often develop sort of a bravado. They're like, oh, okay, I can do whatever I want. You know, I can rape at will. Indeed, a Native woman has an eight in 10 chance of being raped in her lifetime if she lives on a Native reservation. This is outrageous. And it's due largely in part to the Major Crimes Act, which I've known about for a long time. My day job is I'm a professor of Native American studies at Metro State University in Denver. So here's the setup of the novel. Because people are being freed to go out and commit crimes again, citizens on Native reservations often turn to private enforcers or vigilantes. There are people on most reservations that if you want them to go beat up the guy who molested your daughter or your son or you, you can find somebody that will do it for a price. And that's the hero of my book, Virgil Wounded Horse. He charges $100 for each tooth he knocks out and 100 for each bone he breaks. So he'll go get justice when the U.S. government won't. So it's mm. his story, but it's much more than just, hopefully, hopefully it's much more than just the story of him going out and beating people up. He's an Ayeska like me, which is a kind of a slur for half-breed. And so mm. he's struggling with his identity. He's beating people up. And the plot of the book is he's trying to stop heroin from, from being brought into the reservation. So that's the setup. This is a real thing. These private vigilantes actually exist on native reservations. And uh, it's it's his tale. I want to go back to the, the Major Crimes Act. It's so enraging to me <laughs> um, that this, you know, this country's government is still committing such violences against the native peoples. But like what... If anything, is is trying to be done about that law? Well, not a lot. And I'll, I'll come back to that. Let me, let me give a little detail on the Major Crimes Act. So it's passed in 1885 because, weirdly enough, it actually has a relation to my own nation. So the great mm-hmm. leader of our nation was Chief Spotted Tail. And Spotted Tail is murdered by another Lakota person back in 1884. And um, uh, um, I may be off on that by a year or so. And and uh, per, you know, traditional native justice, the killer had to give restitution and reparations to the family of Spotted Tail. OK, fine. So we you know, we had worked it out back in the late 1800s. But the U.S. government loved Spotted Tail and they were enraged that he had been murdered and that there wasn't some sort of retribution per Western justice. So they march on the reservation and they arrest Crow Dog, the killer, and they mm-hmm. charge him with murder. And he's convicted and sentenced to die. He has an attorney and the attorney takes the case all the way to the U S Supreme court. Ironically, for once the U S Supreme court ruled in favor of the Lakota people. They said the U S government cannot come onto a native reservation and impose our, you know, Western system of justice and law because they're a sovereign nation. Okay. So wow. Victory for Lakotas, right? No, because one year later, the U.S. Congress passes the Major Crimes Act, which removes the authority of independent nations to prosecute 14 violent felonies. So they essentially reverse the U.S. Supreme Court. That law is still the law of the land. And now they're underfunding the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office on these reservation justice issues. So there's massive underfunding. We can find money for every military system under the sun, but we can't give a few million dollars to get adequate enforcement so Native women aren't being raped every day. Um, right. So the whole thing is outrageous. Now, your question was, what is being done? The answer is not much. And that's partially why I wrote the book. I did write mm-hmm. an essay 
in the New York Times, July 19th of this year. So I published an op-ed in the New York Times on this issue. It's not fiction. It's about the Major Crimes Act. I got a massive response from people because the circulation of the New York Times is 4 million people. So I got uh, letters from a dean of a law school. I got emails from a former U.S. attorney on a reservation who said, you nailed it. You got this exactly right. So I am using some of the proceeds of Winter Counts and certainly some of the attention I'm getting to try and start a dialogue. I've been in contact with a native law organization, and we're going to try and raise awareness of this issue, and we're going to try and get the Congress to either overturn the law or at the very least amend it. So Mm. I'm trying to use whatever tiny spotlight I have to not just shine on me, but to shine it on this massive injustice in native country. So I'm going to do my best here. And I think, you know, at the very least, I've, I've sort of opened a lot of people's eyes because people just didn't know about this law. But in just mm-hmm. three months, I've got, you know, a best-selling book out on it and a, uh, an op, a, a New York Times op-ed. So I hope that my small efforts are raising some awareness. Yeah, and I, I hope that, that you being here can help as well, because that's why I'm here, for these stories that need to be heard. Um, I didn't know about the Major Crimes Act, even having, you know, an academic background in indigenous issues. So, yeah. Um, thank you for bringing that to our attention. It's really obscure. I just, I don't want to interrupt your, you or your next question, but it's really obscure. You've got members of Congress that don't know about this. You've got Native people that don't know about it. It's, it's this really random, obscure law that has outlived its usefulness if it was ever useful. And indeed, mm-hmm. in my book, in the author's note, I give some resources where people can read up on it. And on my website as well, davidwyden.com, I've got some resources as well. So it's, you know, you shouldn't feel bad that you don't know about it. Nobody did, but it's having this terrible effect on people's lives, on native reservations, the original inhabitants of this country. So, yeah. Uh, So with um, the process of writing the novel, what was it like? Did you, I mean, did it involve a lot of research? Did you spend time because the, the, the reservation in the book is re- a real place, right? Oh yes, yes. It's it's yeah. my nation. It's a real thing. Now I I, I freely invent uh, uh, buildings and places in there. But did I cut you off, or was there more? Or should I? Keep no, going? no, no. Just I I know that was a real place, but did it involve research for you? Did it? How how long did the process take, and what was it like? I I started the the, the story of the book, and I've I've said this in other interviews, but I wrote a uh, a short story in about 2010. I was enrolled in uh, a Master of Fine Arts program at Vermont College of Fine Arts, and I wrote a story there also called Winter Count. So it was sort of the early version of this. And then I did transfer MFA programs. A brand new MFA program opened at the Institute of American Indian Arts, which obviously for a Native person was the obvious place to go. So I transferred there. I published the story in 2014. Now, in the story, Virgil, Wounded Horse, my hero, dies. And so... You know, uh, uh, that that's the end of him. But the story kind of stuck with me, and I kept feeling that I hadn't done enough with it. And so it just kept rattling around in my head. And in about 2017, I said, you know, I need to find out if I have the chops to write a novel or not. I had never – this is my first novel. And, you know, writing a novel is a lot different. A 325-page novel is a lot different mm-hmm. than writing a 30-page short story. And so, indeed, um, I said, look, I'm going to try this. Maybe I'm going to suck at it. But <laughs> I need to see, you know, in my life if, if I can do this. And if I fail, cool. Then, you know, I'll cross it off the bucket list. I tried, you know. So I started writing it uh, because I'm a, a dad of two kids, uh, divorced. And, um, you know, I've got a partner, you know. But, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, being a parent is job enough. And I'm at Metro State University, which we have a very high teaching load. And I have to write my academic papers and all this. So starting in 2017, I got up every morning at 4 a.m. And just uh. wrote before my kids started getting up and screaming for food and whatever. And it took about a, a year and a half to crank this out. Um, now, in terms of research, um, I did have to research some issues pretty heavily, mainly the drug issue. 
the mm. one of the central themes of the book is is heroin is being distributed in a new way on the reservation. And I relied heavily on this wonderful book. It's a nonfiction book called uh, Dreamlands, I think, by Sam Quinones. And it, mm. it, and it is a wonderful book that talks about how there are certain cartels in Mexico that are reshaping how black tar heroin is distributed throughout the Southwest. He calls them the Walmart of black tar heroin. They're cutting out the middleman. And it's sort of this really insidious uh, thing that's happening and it goes hand in hand with the really corrupt drug companies because in the 90s, they got everybody hooked on opioid pain pills through, and he, he details that as well. And then when they couldn't, and when the government finally pulled the plug on these, you know, Oxycontins and everything, um, then a lot of people, they were hooked on morphine. So they just switched to heroin, which is just a different version of the drug. And the cartels were happy to come in and distribute it. So I relied, because I knew none of this, I relied very heavily on his book, and I did a lot of outside reading on that, because I I don't know one thing about heroin distribution. That was uh-huh. the main research thing. On, on the Lakota side of it, I am not a Lakota speaker. I know enough to be dangerous. When I go back to my reservation, if people are speaking Lakota, I can get the gist of what they're saying, but I can't really express it myself. So I did have to do a lot of research to make sure that my slang was correct, to make sure there are a lot of Lakota words in here that I didn't botch them. I went to the tribal college on our reservation. I met with some wonderful elders there who saved me from making some really embarrassing errors. So, yeah, there was a fair amount of research that had to be done. Yeah. Yeah. So you said it took about a year and a half to get it to get it written. And is that um, overall altogether? Let's see. Um, I started writing it maybe March of 2017. I wrote a version of it, sent, I got a a literary agent in the interim. I did two or three more revisions and then we sold it in, I want to say March of 2019. So I would Mm -hmm. say a year and a half to write the first version and then six months to take it through a pretty large number of additional revisions. So two years start to finish. And then it's been in production for about eight months with HarperCollins, where mm. I had a copy editor come in. Uh, my editor had me cut 10,000 words. That was rough. You know, mm. so it's a long process from start to finish. I would say two and a half years from yeah. finished product, from idea in my head to, to finished product, two and a half years. Yeah. And it's being translated. Is that right? In other countries? Yes. So it is, has been translated and is going to appear in January in France by the press Galmeister Editions. Um, I worked with a, a translator, uh, Sophie, who was wonderful. And she, you know, did great sort of translating some of my stuff. I, I thought that she would be asking me the meaning of a lot of Lakota words and like, you know, what is, how do we say shit sack, you know, but she, <laughs> she, she, she did not actually ask for that to be translated. The, the, the things she asked were really random. Like she said, what, what does this Mountain Dew you have people drinking? And why would they drink Mountain Dew? So I had to explain <laughs> to her what Mountain Dew is. And she was just aghast. She, she had no <laughs> idea what Mountain Dew was. Yeah. So I had to explain it. And then I had to provide gender for some of the characters, minor characters, because I guess in, in French, you, every word has to have a gender and I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. Make it a woman. You know, I don't care. Um, so uh-huh. yeah, yeah. So, so it, it, it will in fact, um, be it's coming in, in France soon. And then just a week or two ago, it sold in Germany. And so I have yet to hear what the German press will do. And uh, at that point, nobody else wants to really touch it. Nobody in England wants to buy it, which I don't understand why. I, I don't really know. I mean, you know, I'm kind of envious. A lot of my friends are like, oh, my British audience is so wonderful. And I, I, I can't get them even to take a sniff of this book. They're like, really? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they feel, well, I don't know. Is there anything there possibly about the nature of colonialism and potentially the blood on their hands? I don't, I don't know really what it is. Maybe just Native Americans are too foreign to them. The Germans mm-hmm. love Natives. So, I mean, I've known this for years. I, I would have thought they would have been the first to buy it. But no, it was this French press that was just really gung-ho for it. They They bought it right away. So... I, you know, I don't know. Natives are are such a, I guess, a unique 
proposition. A lot of my writer friends, they sell their books in 10 different countries or 15. But for some reason, I don't know, this, this, look, I'm thrilled that it's going to be in two countries, but for some reason, it, it's not hitting internationally the way I would have hoped. Hmm. That's okay, though. Well, there's, there's still time. Sure, sure. Yeah. So your characters, you're, you, you'd mentioned your hero, Virgil, Wounded Horse, and then we have his nephew, Nathan, who becomes, you know, wrapped up in this framing re- regarding the drugs. And basically his uncle, Virgil, goes, goes ahead and saves him. <laughs> um, how, what's your process like for building these characters and the relationships between them? It felt very authentic and genuine, even between Virgil and Marie and, and that reconnection. Um, what, what kind of characterization process do you That's a great through? question. And, and, and thank you for that. So I get asked this a lot. I get asked, it's like, did you base the characters on any particular person? And, and the answer is no, except for one. So in the book, Virgil Wounded Horse, the hero, is the guardian of his 14-year-old nephew, Nathan. So Virgil's sister, Sybil, has died tragically in a car accident. And so he he takes on the duties of, of becoming a, a parent of sorts to uh, uh, Nathan. And so I did base Nathan, the 14-year-old, on my own son, uh, David Jr., who is now 15. And so those were the toughest chapters for me to write because, you know, it's hard to think about your your own son getting involved in drugs and getting in trouble. I, I would say a lot of it is is comes from David and my own, you know, feelings of being a parent and such. Um, and David often would, would tell me stories. There's a detail that everybody seems to love. In the book, I give a little bit of backstory about Virgil's ex-girlfriend, Marie. And the backstory is that in school, when she was little, Marie would put on fake wolf ears and would howl in class and the teachers mm-hmm. were crazy. Everybody loves that. Well, that that's a story from my kid, David Jr. He mm-hmm. had a friend in elementary school who did that. When I heard this, I'm like, oh, stealing it, David. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so so the character of Nathan, I, I think, owes a lot to uh, David Jr. The rest of the characters, honestly, I pretty much invented from whole cloth. You know, obviously... I borrow a little bit here and there. My partner, Erica, knows a lot about native fashion. I I certainly don't. So she loves this native designer called Bethany Yellowtail. And so I threw in some Bethany Yellowtail in the book, which I would not have known about. So, I mean, I borrow little bits and pieces here and there. But characterization for me, with the exception of of, of Nathan, involves just from kind of thinking about these these characters. And I do a lot of thought about what their backstory is, even what sort of music they listen to. And one of the most fun things I did is I did a playlist for each character and published Mm. it on this blog called Large Hearted Boy. Large Hearted Boy is a a fun blog. And usually writers just talk about songs they like, but I instead talked about songs that my characters would like. And that involved me picking some songs that I don't care for myself. Like Virgil likes heavy metal music, which which I don't Mm. care for. Um, But I, I had to listen to some Megadeth and I put that down in his song. Um, it, it was, it's not my cup of tea. Let's just say that. And I had uh, Nathan who loves rap. He, I, I had some rap songs come in. Um, I did find a wonderful rap song. There's a Lakota rapper named Frank Walm. And uh, oh. so I threw that in the playlist and it is fantastic. And I, I am not really a rap person. My taste in music is more alternative post-punk. My favorite band is this, band called my bloody valentine you know mm-hmm. and sonic youth you know but but nobody in the book really listens to that stuff so so i i kind of force myself so getting back to the original question i could talk about music all day okay it's my passion. i mean i would let you i absolutely love the intersection of music and literature and i definitely have to check out this playlist now so yeah. carry okay. on <laughs> oh listen if 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 listeners out there don't know about large-hearted boy it's run by this guy david gutkowski He's a writer himself and he he writes he he does he pulls clips about literature and music and he invites writers to come in like quite famous writers and do playlists from their their books and write and talk about their books. It's just a wonderful site and it's the only one that I'm aware of. So I just had a a, a tremendous amount of fun coming up with a playlist. I did throw two songs of my own in because it was my playlist, damn it, and I can put in what I want. So <laughs> I did the characters and I said, okay, so here are my two. And so the two songs that I chose for my own 
Uh, I chose a song by the band X, which is an old school Los Angeles punk band, probably my favorite. And they, I think their best song is called The Have Nots. And I, I mm -hmm. put that in. And then I also put a song by Neil Young, whom I love quite a bit from his great album, Tonight's the Night. Uh, he has a song called World on a String, which kind of captures the, the bleak, the bleakness that is in the, the novel. So anyway, so I, I think about my characters a lot. What do they eat? How do they dress? What is their backstory? And even what music they listen to. Yeah, I love it. And then is it just, I mean, I'm not a novelist. So how does it come to you? How do, how do you know that Virgil listens to heavy metal and Nathan listens to rap? Is it just kind of an intuitive thing or? It, it is an intuitive thing, you know, um, just Virgil in the book is, is a big guy. And I just got that he would like this heavily aggressive music and, you know, Nathan being uh, 14 in the book, I knew that he wouldn't like rock. And I, I know this because I had a relentless campaign of musical propaganda for both of my kids. And I, and I mean <laughs> this quite literally from birth. Okay. I'm, this is not a, a false story from birth. I would hold them in the crib like they were one month old and I would play them Elliot Smith, who's another musician I quite liked. I played them Iggy and the Stooges when they were three and four. I did everything I could to make sure that these kids liked the music that I liked. And of course, I utterly failed at it. Uh, <laughs> they reject my music. Um, David loves rap and indeed pop rap. Um, I took him to see somebody called Lil Yachty. So mm -hmm. we went to the Ogden Theater in the, the before times. And yeah. I've not been to many rap concerts. And this was interesting to me to go to Lil Yachty. And um, I didn't realize that at least Lil Yachty would have his <laughs> own crew. And they just sit on the couch on stage. And they were like eating snacks and checking their phones while he rapped. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And I'm like, what? 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 And wow. Okay. So it, it was really great. So David loves this. He was in little boy heaven. I took him when he was 12 and, oh. and we got to meet some of the opening rappers that came back that came out to the, the front of the house. And he just loves rap. Um, his favorite favorite now is somebody, I might get this wrong. Travis Scott. Does that sound right? I, yeah, I, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So he's obsessed with Travis Scott. And so all he'll eat right now is the Travis Scott meal at McDonald's. Uh -huh. So if you're not aware of this, for $6, you get a quarter pounder with some bacon and barbecue sauce and fries and a drink. So he's obsessed with the Travis Scott McDonald's meal. He has Travis Scott <laughs> posters. Anyway, I look, I, I just ramble on here, you know? No, keep going. <laughs> I love it. And I love how much you're dating yourself uh, I, saying I, these names. <laughs> I'm the first to admit it. Okay, look, I'm a middle-aged guy. I, I, I come from the old school punk days, you know, I used to have purple hair and all this, you know, I, I am the first to admit that, that I do not know what uh, uh, younger school age people are listening to. I know what I like. I'm comfortable with my own thing, but mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I have to create a character that's true to their own era and their own being. So I relied upon David to kind of David jr. To see what sort of music and, and, you know, what, how Nathan would be in the book. So it's really more of an intuitive process informed by people I know and general popular culture. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, can we talk a little bit about um, the effects of COVID-19 on the native populations? And the I know that was a huge non sequitur, but um and the uh, effects on the reservation. I remember uh, this past summer traveling through South Dakota um, in my car and being stopped at the reservation, Pine Ridge, I believe it was, and, and directed around the reservation by some of the folks living there. What do you know or what can you tell us about that situation? Yeah, so COVID-19 has been devastating for a number of native populations, mainly the Diné, known as the Navajo. Uh, for a while, anyway, they had the highest per capita rate of COVID-19 infection in the world. And the reason is, again, if listeners don't know this, living standards for natives are often abysmal. 
Um, on my own reservation, about 30% of houses don't have running water. About 30% don't have electricity. And I think the numbers are the same down in Arizona and New Mexico. Um, and so if you don't have, you know, a literally running water, so you can't do great, you know, hand washing. And often you have a lot of people uh, crammed into these little FEMA trailers. You know, after Hurricane Katrina, they took all these moldy trailers and shipped them off to native reservations. True story. So you might have a lot of people. So we don't, it's hard to socially distance on a lot of reservations. You often don't have electricity or running water. So it's been devastating. Now about mm -hmm. South Dakota, uh, my nation, the Rosebud Sioux Tribe, also known as the Sichangu Lakota, is right next door to the Pine Ridge Reservation. And we, both nations did shut down travel across the, you know, across the roads uh, because of COVID-19. But the Republican governor of South Dakota, Christy Noam, came in wow. and there was a big standoff. Uh, she said, you're not going to do that. These are federal roads and you can't do it. And it was going to be ugly. The compromise that was finally reached is um, cars can travel across the reservation, but they're stopped and they're asked where they're going. And if uh, they have to promise to not stop within the towns, but obviously enforcement of this is really yeah. almost impossible. Um, COVID-19 has been absolutely devastating. I've been uh, monitoring the situation on my reservation and we have had a pretty big uptick, but not as bad as I had feared. Not as bad as what the Navajos experienced. Knock on wood, you know, because uh, I, I last three months I've just been deathly afraid that it's just going to wipe out half of our people. But thus far, mm -hmm. it's 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 somewhat under control there. So that's really frustrating about the governor coming in and say like to what extent do tribes actually have the sovereignty that they're that the u.s government claims they're supposed to have that's a complicated question and i have to put on my native american studies professor hat here <laughs> because of a series of unfortunate supreme court decisions way back in the early 1800s native nations are not completely sovereign and independent so in a in a case from 1823 uh, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that Native nations are, quote, domestic dependent nations, meaning that, and, and the, the court even said, like, it's the akin to the relationship between a parent and a child. So Jesus. Native nations are given some minor independence, but not true independence. So it's just like if you have a six-year-old kid, you know, maybe little Johnny can pick whether he wants tater tots or chicken nuggets for dinner but he can't make any real decisions for himself. And that is unfortunately the status of native nations were at best semi-sovereign. You know, every once in a while it comes to a head. About eight years ago, there was a big fight over the Keystone Pipeline, which a lot of people know about on the Standing Rock Reservation. But earlier it, it was on my reservation. We, we had a standoff between the government and our tribe. And actually our president at the time called for all male members of the nation, even if they're living off reservation, to come and report. And there was going to be an armed uh, uh, battle between the U.S. military and natives because we weren't going to allow them onto our land to build this pipeline. You know, literally, our president said, y'all need to come in and report for duty. And I, I had a big fight with my then wife about this because I was ready to go. Now, let me say that if the best that the tribe is relying upon is a middle-aged professor who's shot a gun <laughs> twice in his life, I think probably the deck would have been stacked against us. You know, <laughs> you know, I was ready to go. And, you know, my then wife was like, oh, hell no, you're not going. You got two kids. But I, I would have gone if it had come to that because I, I felt a duty to, uh, you know, to, to stand up. But it, it, it did not come to that. Was there a resolution on the Rosebud Reservation? Did they lay the pipeline through there? They no? did not, um, but not because of anything that we did. It was, I think, due to economics. And so, yeah, it. I mean, it's still an ugly situation that could boil over again because they promised us that this pipeline would never spill, never spill. But, of course, it's already spilled like mm -hmm. five times, thousands, tens of thousands of gallons of oil right into the soil near the water supply. So, yeah, that's just one of, you know, a hundred different issues that affect Native yeah. nations right now. 
Yeah, and you have this character in the book. The, the, his name is escaping me right now, but the indigenous uh, chef. Ah, uh, Chef Lack. Lack. Where did that idea come from? And you know, is it is it something that's happening in in on reservations sure, today? Sure. So in the book, for those who haven't read it, you can't have a book that's all just action. There's a lot of violence in the book. You know, a lot right. of a lot of grimness, but. I think a novel has to, a successful novel has to vary in tone. There have to be moments of lightness and humor and satire that to leaven out the the action, the the suspense and all that. And so I have a couple of characters in there that I hope are kind of funny. There's one called Tommy, who's kind of the court jester of the book. And I really had a lot of fun writing him. But there's also this guy, Chef Lack, Chef Lack Strongbow, who comes to the reservation from California. Uh, with a food truck and he's trying to get people to stop eating fry bread and unhealthy foods. And he's very full of himself where I got the idea for this is there is a movement for a new indigenous cuisine in the country. And it's happening all over the USA. You've got indigenous chefs from all over that are saying we need to quit eating colonized foods. So there are a number of new chefs that are saying, you know, return to the foods that our ancestors ate. So no sugar, no flour, no pork, not even any beef. You know, you need to go out and forage for edible herbs and grasses. And, and if you're going to have, you know, any meat, you know, get some bison. And, you know, that, that's cool and all that, except the average reservation family is, you know, probably not going to be able to forage for too many wild herbs and, and kill too many buffalo these days. Having all said right. that in the book, so, so I, I took – inspiration from a movement that is starting to happen, but I obviously, you know, exaggerated it and satirized it. Um, it is happening. And I, I should say in the book, Chef Lack turns out to be a good guy in the end. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 I mean, as much as I agree, I mean, not that it's even my place to agree or disagree about that. Uh, I would love to see, you know, decolonized food, but there's, I mean, it's so multi-layered the reasons why uh, folks are eating the way they're eating. I mean, but he was, he was an interesting character and Tommy was very much fun to read. (laughs) Tommy is coming back in the sequel. So if I didn't say this already in the time we've been talking, there is a sequel. I do have a two book deal with Harper Collins. Yeah. I'm I'm sketching out the sequel right now. I pretty much have 90%. I know where it's going to go. I have to deliver the manuscript to HarperCollins fairly soon. So yeah. as soon as promotional stuff, which I'm loving, is over, I have to get back to writing. I can assure you that Tommy will return in the book. He <laughs> was just a joy to write. So Tommy is this sort of silly, crazy dude. And I used him as a, a conduit to to bring in just lots of crazy ideas and stuff. Like there's yeah, just just a million different things that I could talk about. So I brought in some Denver stuff in there. Uh, Tommy talks about he goes to a bar one night and he tells Virgil about this story that there was a. This is going to get dark here, so just okay. so he talks about that he was at a bar and there was some guy with no arm, and the guy told him that he had a vision one night. The guy with no arm, he had a vision, and he had to put his arm down on a railroad track to save the world, and indeed the railroad cut off his arm. That really happened in Denver. That's the comedian Don Becker, who in the 80s in Lower Downtown, before it got all built up, you know, got real drunk, had some sort of a psychotic breakdown and indeed put put his arms down on a railroad track and, and had them cut off. And then continued to do his comedy routines and made people very uncomfortable (laughs) in the eighties because he would tell these jokes that I don't even like to tell right now. He's like, yeah, my, my piano playing has suffered, you know? And so I mean, just, yeah, yeah. I I know. I mean, he was very open about it and people would be like, ha 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 ha. And um, so Don Becker is kind of a local legend. I had to cut father phony. I don't know how long, are you from Denver? How long have you been in town? I've been here 11 years. I'm, I'm from okay. the East Coast. But, okay. Yeah. You probably don't know Father Phony. So in the 90s, we had this Father Phony. He would dress up in this raggedy Catholic priest outfit and take a box around and ask for donations from tourists. And of course, he was not a priest. He was a guy just scamming people. Um, and I love, but the thing is, we kind of love Father Phony in Denver. You know, um, he was kind of a Denver institution. So I had Father Phony 
in an early version of the book, uh, but I, I had to cut him. But but oh. yeah, yeah, there's, there, you know, in the Denver sections or actually throughout the book, there are a lot of hidden nuggets in there that, you know, folks where they've been here 11 years or a lifetime, you know, the Denver chapters and lot, lots of little nuggets that I hope will appeal to to Denver folk. Yeah, I certainly enjoyed it. Right. Um, so for those of us looking to read more Indigenous lit, what are maybe two to three books or who are two to three authors that you would recommend? Well, I'd be uh, uh, a bad partner if I didn't recommend my partner Erica Worth's uh, book. So Erica Worth um, is a native writer. She has, uh, let's see, two collections of poetry, two novels, <clears throat> and a uh, my favorite, she has a collection of short stories called Buckskin Cocaine about the native film world. And I, I think that's some of her strongest work. And she's working on a new novel uh, right now. So check out Erica Worth. Um, my buddy, Stephen Graham Jones, whom I've already mentioned, who writes Indigenous Horror, his new novel is All the Good Indians, uh, The Only Good Indians. It is superb. Um, you know, he and I are going to be talking at, I want to say, the Vermont Literary Festival or something in a month or so, something like that. Um, you know, he's great. He's hilarious. Um, another great writer who who I know through the Internet, we've, we keep missing each other at events, is Kelly Jo Ford. She's a Cherokee writer. She has a great book out right now called Crooked Hallelujah. Um, and um, a, another friend of mine, I know I'm going on and on about this, but Tony Jensen is a native writer who has a book of nonfiction uh, uh, out called Carrie. It's about, uh, C-A-R-R-Y, about... Mm-hmm guns and what it is to be indigenous in a gun crazy society. You know, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it got a nice review in the New York times. And so that's probably a, a good start. And of course my buddy, Tommy orange, but I I'm assuming everybody in the world by now has read uh, uh, Tommy orange's novel. They're there, you know, it, yeah. it, it, it took the nation by storm and he was nice enough to give me a blurb and he's just, he's just a solid guy. Nice. Outstanding. What an honor to talk to you. Thank you for making this time. Oh, it was such a such a pleasure. You know, listen, uh, it's been great. I appreciate it. You know, it's it's just uh, great, great to chat. That's what I can say.